this evening we're going to be looking at one verse um, in the topic of the spoils of war and also going into the discussion of Khums, a gift to the believers. Now as we'll recall um, that this entire chapter actually has been revealed after the, uh, during and then after the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah. Many things were given to the Muslims, the sakina, the tranquility, forgiveness of their sins, being kept on the straight path, and many other blessings Allah was speaking about. Um, and one of the things that Allah gave to the believers, both in the victory of Khaybar, the Fatah of Mecca, is the spoils of war. And this was also there in earlier battles, right from the beginning of the Battle of Badr, which was the first battle. And incidentally, today actually is a very uh, joyous day in other ways, because today actually is the anniversary of the Battle of Badr. That in the first year after the Hijra, this, this, it was on this day, actually the 15th slash 16th of Ramadan, that the Battle of Badr took place. We know that that was the very first battle. It was one where the Muslims were outweighed, outgunned at three to one. Over a thousand enemy soldiers and there were only 313 of the Muslims. But yet they brought a stunning defeat to the Mushrikeen. And obviously that was going to be the first of many victories of the Muslim community. So one of the things that was given as the spoils of war, that basically opposing armies fight the winner, basically takes whatever the enemy had, whether it be horses, camels, wealth, uh, people, right? We have the concept of slavery in Islam, which Islam tried to uh, slowly remove from the society. But one of the things that would become a spoil of war is you capture the enemy's women and children and they become your property. So Battle of Badr took place and the spoils of war were one of the gifts that the Messenger of Allah was given by various ayat of the Quran that we looked at in previous sessions and that we will touch upon tonight. But I also want to focus specifically this evening on the issue of the khums. So let's go right into verse number 24 tonight where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim wa'adakumullahu maghanima kathiratan ta'khudunaha fa'ajjala lakum hadhihi wa kaffa aydiyan nasi ankum litakuna ayatan lil mu'minin wa yahdiyakum siratan mustaqiman A lot of the themes in this verse brothers and sisters if you remember the other 19 verses we've reviewed are actually a repetition in a sense. The fact that Allah will give the, pro the Muslims a promise is a re repeated fact. The maghanima kathiratan is a repeated fact. Uh, the fact that the believers would be guided to the straight path or that continuous guidance and steadfastness is a repeated fact. But in this translation Allah says, Allah has promised all of you Muslims abundant gains of war that you will take later. And that and these he granted you as current present day reward for your obedience and purity of intention. And he has restrained the hands of other hostile people from you so that it may be a sign for the believers concerning the truth of their way and Allah's promises to them. And that he Allah may guide you to steadfastness on a straight path. So scholars debate on where this, on what context this was revealed. Again, as I said, the entire chapter comes down during and after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, so literally uh, sixth year after the Hijra, as the Muslims are in outskirts of Mecca, and on the way back to Medina, this chapter comes down to Rasulullah. And Allah is giving the Prophet a few glimpses in here. One is that he's promised the believers the spoils of war. Now, when you wonder about the spoils of war, I'll talk about that a bit, about, uh, that 
just briefly uh, later on, but Allah is promising that to the believers that very shortly will they, or very soon rather, they will get these spoils of war. Um, Allah has also promised them that He would restrain, where He says, uh, that Allah would ensure that the disbelievers would have no way to attack and reach the believers. That hostility that was planned, that they would have wanted to enact against the Muslims, Allah was going to prevent that from reaching the Muslim community. And this would become an ayah, as Allah says, وَلِتَكُونَ آيَةً لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ That this would be a sign of their truthfulness, of the validity of Islam, of the fact of the promises of Allah, that Allah would make sure that the disbelievers would not have the upper hand against the believers. And then as Allah says that He would guide you, and not only guide you to the Sirat al-Mustaqim, because again, they're not deviated, but it shows a steadfastness, it shows that Allah, we need that from Allah, a continuous guidance. We always need help from Allah to always stay on the straight path because there are always ways of deviation. Now this phrase, as I said, maghanima kathiratan, our commentators of the Quran give us three opinions of what this could mean. They say, one, it could mean the short-term gain for the Muslims at the time of Rasulullah. Short-term, so this was revealed in six after the Hijrah. It could be for one or two years, three years. These short-term uh, military excursions and success they would have would be one term or one definition of the maghanim kathira. Or they say it could be a long-term, right? Because although the Prophet only lived four or five years after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah from six to about 11, they say it could refer to all of the events which took place in the year six after the treaty, all the way till the death of Rasulullah. And number three is they say that it could refer to Muslims and our, the spoils of war that we would collect all time until the end of time. Right? Obviously today we're not in a state of war, but we know that a time will come when the Imam returns, our 12th Imam, Imam al-Hujjah, ajjalallahu ta'ala farajahu sharif that war will be a reality. There will be war, there will be fighting, there will be killing, there will be bloodshed, and there will be the spoils of war to take. And scholars also say it could, not, it could also not only refer to material blessings, but it could be the spiritual maghanim, right? The, the sakina, the sukun, the tranquility, the recognition of Islam as being the dominating force at that time, and again, God willing, at the time of the return of our Imam, Imam al-Hujjah, ajjalallahu ta'ala, farajahu sharif I want to now move into a topic about khums. Uh, it's related to this topic of this ghanima. Um, and, you know, khums is one of the many issues of Islam that people have a problem with, especially today. Muslims, unfortunately, we have drifted, I would say, a lot from the, the teachings of Islam. Whereas we don't have a problem with Muslims asking questions about religion, the problem comes when people want to question religion to defy authority. So you can ask why, what is the philosophy of Salat? What is the philosophy of Hajj, of Hijab, of Jihad, of Khums? But most of the time that what I've seen and what the you know, people online, when they address and speak about Khums in specific, is they're not asking questions to understand. They're asking questions to debate and to argue the validity of Khums in the 21st century. So literally Khums, it's an Arabic word obviously, it means one-fifth, 20%. And what is the understanding, and we'll look at this uh, in, in detail from the ayat, of the, the, the one verse of the Qur'an. 
is that after all of our savings at the end of the year, whatever day you choose to be the fiscal end of your year, all of the savings that you have, whether it be cash, whether it be investments in the stock market, whether it be RRSPs or GICs or TFSAs or RESPs or whatever investment, anything excess you have at home, food, other things you've bought over the year that you haven't used, all of that has to have a tax taken out on it, what we call the homes. And we have to calculate 20% of the total value and that money is an obligation to be given to Allah at the first level and to the Prophet and the other recipients that are mentioned in the Quran that we will look into the verse. So let me begin with this, that khums is mandated in the Quran. Now if we are not mujtahideen, I don't, I don't think we have any mujtahids in this room. I don't think we even have any mujtahids in Canada, maybe one or two possibly. Many self-appointed and self-proclaimed mujtahideen and maraja who are nothing but people posing in that position. So if we're not mujtahids, we're not doing ihtiyat, precaution, then we are all muqallideen, we're all doing taqlid of a marja. We've all decided on a particular marja to follow, whoever that may be, and we have accepted that that man knows more than we do. That man has more time in his life than we do. That man has dedicated his entire life to study the Quran and Hadith and the sources of, of, of Islamic jurisprudence to come up with rulings that we follow. If we're in the position of taqlid, then really we have to accept that Khums is a part of this faith. And we shouldn't even have to have this discussion tonight, you know, the validity of Khums. But I get it that people have questions, we have concerns, we have want to be better, better understanding the rules. So I'm going to try and unpack some of it today. Obviously to discuss any topic within Islamic uh, jurisprudence, the fiqh, the ahkam would take us weeks if not months, if not years to delve into. But I'm going to give you the basics and you can go and do your own research if you feel like it. So where does homes come in the Quran? Because again our first question is where in the Quran does X, Y and Z come? So you just have to turn to uh, Surah number 8, Surah Al-Anfal, verse 41 of the Qur'an and you can see what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says in this verse. He says, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّمَا غَنِمْتُمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ فَأَنَّ لِلَّهِ خُمُسَهُ وَلِلْرَسُولِ وَلِذِي الْقُرْبَى وَالْيَتَامَ وَالْمَسَاكِينِ وَابْنِ السَّبِيلِ إِن كُنْتُمْ آمَنْتُمْ بِاللَّهِ وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَىٰ عَبْدِنَا يَوْمَ الْفُرْقَانِ يَوْمَ it's a very lengthy verse, but you can read the translation. Allah says, and know, wa'lamu, understand, comprehend. It's not a difficult concept, Allah is saying. Have the knowledge and understand this. That whatever you, the Muslims, take as ghanimat, we'll, we'll keep it as ghanima, although the translation says the gains of war, but we'll expand on that. Whatever you take as ghanima, as the gains of war, to Allah, to Allah belongs one-fifth of it, 20%. And to the Messenger, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So the Khums right away is being told Allah has a share of it. Which sounds kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Why would Allah want money when He's got everything? Allah is ghani. He has no need for our $25 or $200 or $1,000. So why, why now is Allah saying, if you have any excess, 
20% is for Allah. Who is going to take charge? Does Allah have a bank account at TD Bank? I can go to TD Bank and deposit into God's account? Hopefully we don't think that. So what does that mean that God takes 20, that God has a right in 20% of our wealth? Well, we'll look at that. So 20%, Allah is one of the recipients. Rasul is a recipient. But it doesn't stop at Allah and the prophets. The near kinsfolk, the family of the prophet, the Sayyids, the Sadats, they have a share in the Khums. It doesn't stop there between these three groups, the orphans, the destitute, the poor people, the wayfarers, those who are devoid of sufficient means on a journey, on a travel, they have a share of Khums as well. And then Allah says that you, this you must observe if you truly believe in Allah. Right? in in kuntum amantum billah. If you really believe in Allah, then you will accept that the khums is a part of this religion. And he says, and what we sent down on our servant, meaning the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. When on the day when the truth and falsehood were distinguished from one another, the day of the Furqan, as Allah calls it, the day when the two hosts met in battle. And Allah has fully full power over everything. So this is, brothers and sisters, the only time in the Quran where we hear the word khums, khumusahu, the topic of khums, only once in the Quran. And so right away people say, well, if it's only mentioned once, it's probably not that important, right? It's probably not a really important rule. If it was important, Allah could have mentioned it 5, 10, 20, 50, 100 times. Why only once? Look at Salat. Aqimu Salat wa atu Zakat. Aqimu Salat. It's so many times in the Quran. Zakat, so many times in the Quran. But then ask yourselves, how many times is Shahrul Ramadan mentioned in the Quran? We're all fasting, presumably today, hopefully, if we, unless we have a valid reason why we're not fasting. But Shahrul Ramadan is mentioned exactly one time in the Quran. Maybe it's not too important. Why are we focusing so much on Shahrul Ramadan? Right? Because it's a Quranic obligation but because the Rasulullah also spoke about it. Okay. Let me give you an example. I've, I've mentioned this before a million times, but I'll mention it for the million and first time. When you or I, when any of our community members or, or a family member dies, we have a janazah, what do we do? Do we just go across the street to the, to the cemetery and say, burn the body, and we'll throw the ashes in, in, in the South Saskatchewan River? We don't do that, right? We, give the, we go in the basement, we give the body a ghusl, we give it three ghusls with three kinds of water. We apply the hunut, we give the kafan, we come upstairs where we recite namaz, or downstairs where we recite namaz janaza, we recite the namaz mayat, we'll go across to the graveyard, we'll, in the middle of winter, it's minus 40, we'll bury that individual, right? We'll spend two hours out there in the freezing cold, we'll bury them. We'll come back here. Why do we do that? There is not a single verse of the Quran how you bury a Muslim. But yet we all do it. Back home in Pakistan, in Iran, in Afghanistan, every Muslim, Shia, Sunni, Brelvi, Deobandi, whatever group you call yourself, Wahhabi, Salafi, we all bury Muslims in the same way. But it's not in the Quran. So why don't you tell Molana, well, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, my mom and dad are gonna die, I'm gonna just cremate the bodies. Right? Because it's not in the Quran. 
But we don't think like that, or we shouldn't think like that, brothers and sisters. Right? Just because Chumas is in this one verse, you can't discount it and say, I'm not going to do it, because there's only one verse of the Quran, and even then there's a difference of opinion. What is Ghanima? I don't know. So, what I want to go on and say is that there's no problem when Allah states the general rules in the Quran, but the specifics have to be mentioned in the hadith. Were Allah to mention every single rule of Islam in the Quran in detail, right now our Quran is 114 surahs, 6,236 verses in the Uthman Taha script, it's about 600 pages. We're allowed to have to explain every single fiqh ruling. If you look at the Risala of Al-Maraja, for example, Sayyid Sistani, may Allah protect him and all of the ulama, his Arabic Risala is three volumes, 600 pages each. You expect Allah to add that much more into the Qur'an? How will people memorize the Qur'an? People will say, this book is too big, I can't read it in Ramadan. So there's no problem that Allah explains general rules in the Qur'an. But then he tells Rasul, your job is to explain to the people what to do, how to do it. Right? I'll give you three examples. Our salat, the namaz we pray. The Quran says, aqimu salat, pray. Quran never tells you and I how to pray. But you know what? When does the Quran teach you and I how to pray? Where's one time in the Quran? Anybody know when that one time is? Allah teaches us how to pray. Salatul khawf. When you're in the time of a war and your enemy is attacking you, that's the only salat in the Quran where Allah tells the Muslims one group goes ahead and prays, other groups stay to defend. Then they move back and the other group goes ahead and prays and the others defend them. That's the only namaz in the Quran that I swear none of us will ever pray in our lives. Unless we're in the middle of a war with swords in hand, we'll never pray salatul khawf. Literally, this was for Muslims in the battlefield 1400 years ago. And maybe when the Imam returns, that may happen. But today, we don't pray it, but yet Allah described it in detail in the Quran. Salatul Ayat. We have to pray when an eclipse happens, an earthquake, major events, but it's not in the Quran. But yet we all pray. Why? Because the Prophet showed us how to pray it. Zakat, the general charity. Allah says, Aqimu salat wa atu zakat. Zakat, so much in the Quran. What is it? How much is it? Is it what our Sunni brothers say, 2.5%? Is it 10? Is it 30? Is it 80%? If you have 1,000 cows, is it 200 cows? Is it one cow? Is it 37 cows? If you have 1,000 kilos of raisins, or you're a farmer in, in Saskatchewan and you're growing wheat, what is your zakat? It's not in the Qur'an. It's there, the word zakat, but there's no definition, there's no amount. So how does a person pay zakat? They need to go and ask the Prophet, how much zakat do I pay? It's not in the Qur'an though. So what is a Muslim going to say? Well, it's not in the Qur'an, the amount, so I'm not going to do it? Well, then I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to fast, I'm not going to go for hajj. I'm not going to do anything as a Muslim because nothing is in the Qur'an. Hajj, Qur'an says, وَأَتِمُّ hajj." Right? Complete the Hajj and the Umrah for Allah. There's a surah, Surah Al-Hajj. But show me in the Quran where Allah gives you and I the order, how to do Hajj. Okay, yes, Makkah is in the Quran. Allah talks about going between Safa and Marwa in the ayat. 
Allah says, nas, That go where the people go to Arafat. And then Allah talks about going to Muzdalifa. Then there's the Jamarat. But even before all of that, the ihram that you and I wear, the men, we wear that two pieces of white cloth, that's not in the Qur'an. So I can go in my Armani suit, you know, with my nice Gucci watch on and my Rolex, and look nice and do hajj in a three-piece suit. But it's because it's not in the Qur'an. There's no verse about ihram in the Qur'an. Again, if we go by the Qur'an is sufficient, hasbuna kitab Allah, like that man said when the Prophet was on his deathbed, which is a ridiculous statement from that man, but I don't expect anything more from him, then we're going to have an Islam that is so bland and dry, we won't be doing any act of worship, literally. We would not be praying, fasting, nothing we would do. Maybe fasting we might, because Allah tells us, but we would have issues of when to break and all of these other things. So that goes to the point then, we have to go to another source. The Qur'an doesn't discuss the specifics, we go to the teacher of the Qur'an, which is our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. We go to the Prophet, we go to the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. We're no longer there in Mecca, in Medina, in Kufa. To ask the Imams, we're not in Kathamein, we're not living with them, so what do we do? Well again, if we keep the taqlid issue aside, we go to the books of Hadith. The books of Hadith that have been compiled, which mention the sayings of the Imams. And the, the way to authenticate is a different issue, I'm not going to even touch upon that, but if you go to one of our most authoritative books of Hadith, which is about all of the jurisprudence, the ahkam, which our ulama will all study when they go through the process of ijtihad, Wasail al-Shia is the primary book compiled by Shaykh Khur al-Amali, may Allah bless him, he's buried in Mashhad in one of the courtyards actually, uh, literally right across from where the gold dome is of Imam Radha, right from where the dhari is. If you look right across, there's, a, un, there's a, a, an underground cellar, you go down about 50 stairs, and Sheikh Amali's grave is right down there. He compiles Wasail al-Shia, um, current, volume is 20, uh, current print is 20 volumes. He has over 80 hadith in 15 different chapters about khums. 80 hadith, not one or two, but 80. And look at the last chapter, what his title is. The obligation of khums upon any profit gained through business trading, construction, farming, and other professions. Look at the other ones about khums on spoils of war, minerals, that you take, you know, gold and silver you extract, you go into the ocean and you get pearls, you find, you know, uh, things under the ocean and under the water. But chapter 8 is about what you earn, your business. And he has hadith. I'm going to show you just one hadith, the shortest one I could find to fit on screen, that the imams of Ahlul Bayt were asked about homes on our income. Not from going to war and fighting the kuffar. No, about income that you earn in your salary. What is the ruling of homes on that? So he says, again, chapter 8, there's 10 hadith about homes, about working and business. And this is just one of those 10 hadith. Again, I'll read the translation. Abu Ali uh, Rashid uh, mentions this hadith in one of the companions of the Imam. He was a not just a companion, sorry, he was a directly appointed agent, a wakil of Imam al-Jawad and Imam al-Hadi. So he says to one of the Imams, he says that you have commanded me to stand in, your, in society with your authority. 
So the, he's telling the Imam, you've put me in charge as a Shia, as your wakil, and to take your right from others. And I've made this known to the people who follow you. But some of them have asked me, and what is the haq of the Imam? What is the right of the Imam that you are taking from us based on your authority as being the representative of Imam al-Jawad and Imam al-Hadi? I don't know what to answer them, the man says. The Imam says, tell them that the khums is obligatory upon them. He says to the Imam, upon what things is the khums applicable? The Imam says the khums is applicable upon their goods and their business. The, then the man says, I asked the Imam, is the khums also applicable upon their trading and upon that which they manufacture? The Imam says, if anything of it remains after their expenses. So he's not saying that you went to war and you got money. He's not saying you dived into the ocean and you got pearls. He's not saying you dug and you found gold and now that has homes on. He's saying any business you have, any profession that you have, and you have any, ex after all of your legitimate expenses, you have any savings, homes becomes a applicable wajib and obligation upon that. 20% of whatever is left, whatever is saved over after that, all of your expenses. Now, I admittedly, again, I'm saying I'm going through this very quick. There's a lot of detail. We would really need a week to go over it in, in, in detail in, in, in every aspect. Obviously, we don't have that time. But I'm going to just give you snippets that you can then hopefully go back and read. There, there is information online in English and other languages. And you can also look for lectures by respectable scholars. So a question which somebody asked me maybe about a month ago here was, was khums always applicable in Islam? We're talking about it today in 2023. The man, the brother asked me that during the time of Imam Ali, did his companions, did they pay khums? Did they come to a mola or one of his representatives and say, here is my khums? And I, this is all from Ayatollah Nasir Makar Mishirazi. This is not my own creation. This is from a marja taqlid, a very respectable mujtahid marja in khum today from a book that I've translated of his on khums. A very detailed look at homes from history, from the Quran, from Shia, Sunni perspectives. And he says, yes, we have hadith that shows that the Khilafat of Amir al-Mu'mineen, he was taking homes from the people. What about the other Imams? The other Imams, Imam Hassan, all the way to Imam al-Askari, and even the 12th Imam, Imam al-Hujjah, Ajjalallahu ta'ala farajuhu sharif. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Again, Ayatollah Nasim Akarma says, yes, we have hadith to show, as the example I just showed you from Imam al-Jawad and Imam al-Hadi, that they were collecting khums or having their representatives collect khums from their followers. And even they had representatives that they sent all the way to Qum in Iran, in Persia of that time, that were faqis, they were jurists, they were answering questions, but they were also collecting khums of the people of, of Qum and transporting it to the Imam, whether it was in Kadmein or Baghdad, as much as they could, given the political climate of Banu Abbas and putting pressure on the Ahlul Bayt. Many times they might not have to take the homes, they may be allowed to spend it locally because the Imams were concerned that if these representatives were caught with amounts of money, the money would be taken, it would be given to Bani Abbas, and that would add, that would be a compound problem for the Mu'mineen. But the third question this brother asked me is that what about during the time of the Prophet and Imam Ali in the early years before the Khilafat of Amir al-Mu'mineen and the time of Rasulullah? Did the Prophet tell the Sahaba, you have to pay khums? 
that you have to give 20% of your savings. Did the Prophet ever take homes from the community is the question. The answer is no, he never did apparently. This is a direct quote from Ayatollah Makanam again in his book. He says, we have no clear chain of events to show that the Khums was actively practiced during the time of the Prophet and Imam Ali presumably before his caliphate on excess wealth earned through work, trade and business. However, he says, the taking or forgiving of this Islamic tax is in the discretion of the Islamic leadership. When they don't need it or when they see that the people are in difficult times, he says they are permitted to forgive this tax. So although he says in his research, and this is a man who, if you don't know him, you should study about him. He's a great mujtahid, great maraja taqlid. Hundreds of books he's written or authored. He's very approachable. If you go to Iran, he's very easy to meet. He says we have no clear hadith of the Prophet ever taking khums. But he says with that, he says, keep in mind that him as the head of state, the Prophet has a right to tell the Muslims, A, because they didn't need the money, because keep in mind, as he mentions in this book, there were so many battles happening, people were attacking the Muslims, they were defending, they were on the attack when they had to be. There was a lot of money coming into the Muslim government at that time. Number two, Ayatollah Makara mentions that the Muslim Ummah at that time owned a lot of land. A lot of land, like the Jews of Khaybar, they were living on land owned by the Muslims and other groups. Ayatul Makarim says so much revenue was coming in through land tax, property tax, what we have today in Canada. He says there could have been no need for Rasulullah to put a burden on the Ummah because they're still growing, they're still developing, they're still expanding. So he had it within his jurisdiction, according to the Marja, that the Prophet said, could say to the Ummah, you don't have to pay the homes right now. He could say it is forgiven from you for this time. Or because they could have been difficult situations and the Prophet did not want to impose on the Ummah because they're also going to this you know, growth spurt. They're still homeless in a, in a way. They're still only limited to Medina. They can't go to Mecca. They don't have territory to expand in that much. So because of all of these, he says that it is possible to believe that Khums was not taken by the Prophet or Amir al-Mu'minin in the early days because it just A, wasn't needed or it wasn't practical to expect the Mu'minin to give the Khums. Hopefully that is clear. It doesn't mean that they cancelled it. No, but they have the right because the Prophet has the right as the head of state. He has the right to say, you know what, right now I will not take taxes from the community because of many reasons. So the Prophet has that right. I'm going to uh, conclude the next five minutes, pose some, um, po some positive aspect of the Khums. If we can agree, and you can all you know, think about it this yourself, I'm not imposing on you. I'm giving you the evidence from the Quran, from the Hadith, from our ulama. It's up to you to make your own decision if you want. If you're not already paying Khums, if you want to pay, the, 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 the documentation is there. Um, but if we accept that Khums is a part of Islam, the, the Qur'an said 20% is Allah's property, is the Prophet, is the Dil Qurba, the, yata, the Yatama, the Masaqeen, the Wabnis Sabil. If we agree that that verse of the Qur'an breaks down the, the demarcation of who gets the right to use the Khums and we accept it, then we can ask, well, where does our Khums get used? 
right? And at one level, I would say this to all of you, that if you're paying your khums, A, you have to make sure it's going to somebody who has written authority from the marja you follow. They should be able to produce a document that shows that they have permission in writing to allow you to use khums. Don't just say, oh, it's a molana and he has a turban on his head, black or white, it doesn't make a difference. And I trust him, and he's coming and saying, I have Khum's permission, give me your money. No, don't give him your money. Make sure he has permission from the mujtahid in writing. His name would be on that paper. It would have his name, his credentials. The marja would say, I permit this person to collect and use X amount for personal usage or for community usage. And may, he might write that a certain amount should go back to my office and his stamp will be there, his signature, his date, will, the date of that letter will be there. He might even say it's for five years, for ten years, he may specify. But make sure you ask the person, I want proof that you have permission to collect my khums. He has to, and he has to give you a proof when you, he gets the receipt, because he has to go back to the office of the marja either submit the money back, the return, the amount, or he has to just give them notification. And he will get a, a slip, a receipt that your khums, or the, the amount has been given to the mujtahid. If you don't get that slip, we're told that your khums is not accepted by Allah. Because you don't know, did he go and spend that in, in vacation in Las Vegas? Did he go on vacation to, the, you know, to Europe and travel and enjoy the, 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 the Swiss Alps? You don't know, so you have to have confidence that that man used the money and gave the right amount to the mujtahid. So where does our khums go? We all give it, hopefully. These are just six things that came on the top of my head where our khums in Canada goes to. To build and maintain the Islamic centers. This building that we are sitting in today, and you heard Mawlana Rizvi a few weeks ago, that this was built, although through general donations, I'm sure of all of you in this room, and people across Canada and the world, but Homs was used to build this building. Right? And Homs has been used to build centers across Canada and to maintain them. Homs is used for educational and propagational projects, publish Islamic literature. Homs is used to run some satellite TV stations. Homs is used to propagate the teachings of Islam to non-Muslims. Homs is used. It is in our community that money is being used to support students who are studying in the seminary. Right? Because they don't, get, uh, they don't get the opportunity to work when, you're, when they're studying, and there's no time to work. And the Iranian government, or the Iraqi government for that matter, or the Syrian government, or the Lebanese government, they don't provide monthly income to the students of the Hausa because the Hausa is independent of any government. It might be in the country, but at one level they are independent. They don't have a budget from the, from the, foreign gov from, from the government that they are operating under. So our homes goes to help those students. And you figure that right now, I would guesstimate about 40,000 students in Qum right now. Each one is getting approximately $100, let's say, a month. Minimum is 100 If you're at the senior level, you're getting more money. If you're a junior or newly, you'll get less. But if you average $100 times 40,000, do the math. How much is that? Four million, right? Every month. Just for the house of Qum. Forget about Mashhad, Tehran, Karbala, Najaf, Samara, Lebanon, Syria. Maybe 20 million a month we're spending to get our students and our, to get to the level of being extremely top-notch scholars. That's not, a, that's not a small chump change, you know, that's a lot of money. 
and that some of it comes from the homes. Humanitarian relief, right? We saw the floods in Pakistan, which people are still suffering through. Armaraja gave specific permission at that time that homes could be used to help the people of Pakistan. Earthquake in Turkey and Syria. What happened in Iraq when, when ISIS took over. Sayyid Sistani actually had a ruling that don't even give me your homes, I don't want to see it. You use it against the fight against Daesh and for the Iraqi civilians. I don't even want the money in my account or coming to me. So he and other maraja are like this. They give to humanitarian causes. They give the right to use it in humanitarian causes. And God forbid if we were to face something in Canada, I'm sure that the support would be there of the maraja. They wouldn't turn us back and say, no, you don't need it because you have money. I'm sure their support would be there. It's used to support scholars who work full-time in our centers across Canada and across North America and in the world. Because many times scholars, if they are wanting to serve a Jamaat full-time and give all the services, they can't be expected to work because you can't do both. And I know that because I worked 10 years at BlackBerry and believe me, when you're working 3.30 till midnight, you can't go and give a lecture at 8 o'clock in the center because you're busy working, right? So those ulama who work full-time, they have to have income. You expect them to fast all day and take money from fasting or do extra namaz for people or what, what else do they do? So homes is used to support the ulama who are working full-time in the cause for Islam. And obviously helping the needy sadat, the sayyids. We have sadat in Canada who might be out of a job, who can't find a job. There are difficulties in our economy. Sehme Saadat can go directly to them. We don't even have to have the permission of Ayatollah Sistani. Why? Because the Quran gave permission. You know a Sayyid who can't get a job, who can't pay the bills, you can go and give them your Saadat money and they can accept it and there's no need to even go to the Maraja to ask permission. And also for uh, non-Sayyids, we have the Sahma Imam that can also be given to them to use in times of difficulty. So if you look at this circle, Six examples I've given, these are all helping us here in Canada. Yes, we can send our homes overseas, but if we better to keep it in Canada, we're going to build this community, maybe 10 years down the line, you'll need to build a new center or expand this building. Maybe you'll want to build an Islamic school here for kindergarten, a Montessori. Homes money will come and save the day for those construction projects. Maybe one day you'll say we need a full-time alim here, and homes will be helping to pay that alim to buy him a house for the family to live in, to provide round-the-clock services to the community. All of this can be done, brothers and sisters, when we recognize homes as not being a burden, but being a benefit for our community. You know, I'll mention this as I can, we conclude that Ayatollah Makara, when he wrote this book that I'm referring to, he had a conversation with a Sunni alim one time, who came, I think, from Egypt. And when he explained to him the system of homes, in the Shia, this Sunni alim was shocked. He says, you know, we in Egypt, we are under the government. So today it's Husni Mubarak, tomorrow is the revolution, tomorrow it's, you know, Muhammad Morsi, then it's somebody else. He says, we're always under the yoke of the government. We don't have freedom. And he envied the Shias that we have homes that gives our ulama independence and freedom, and that we can do tabligh and propagate and, and give humanitarian causes which they can't do because they are under the government control. 